I'd like you to turn in your Bibles right now to Romans chapter 8 if you have them, or turn them on if you uh, have an electronic Bible. Uh, Romans 8, and then find verse 16. Last week, uh, I began our examination of Romans 8, 16 through 25 with four general observations. Uh, I want to reiterate them as we begin this morning. Now, in that passage, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this now time, this in-between time, uh, to not be worthy of the glory, not worthy of comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us and to us. And I want to reiterate four observations that we began with last week uh, that, uh, that provide insights to this passage. And the first is that in the life of Christian discipleship, the sufferings and the glory that Paul talks about in that passage are inseparable. The suffering precedes the glory. There is no glory without suffering. It was true in the life of Christ. It is true in ours as well. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The second observation that we saw last week is this, that the sufferings and the glory, the sufferings and the glory are markers for the two ages that the Bible speaks about so much, this present age and the age to come. And so Paul writes in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory, the glory that is to be revealed to us. The third observation is this, is that the sufferings and the glory can't be compared. They're incomparable. They they can only be contrasted. And Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. He said, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then fourth, the sufferings and the glory concern both God's creation and God's children. The creation is suffering. Creation is groaning. God's children are suffering. And both will see the glory. So Romans 8.19 in the J.B. Phillips paraphrase, as we saw it last week, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. And why is the creation on tiptoe? Why are they waiting so eagerly for that moment? The answer is that because that will be when the creation itself will also be liberated and revealed in all of its creational, recreational glory. So let's stand and read today's scripture together. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is his word. You may be seated. You may have noticed that there is a whole lot of groaning going on in there. A whole lot of groaning. In verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In verse 23, we who are the children of God groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In verse 26, the Spirit of God himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Well, last week we saw in verses 20 to 22 why it is that the material creation, the material non-human creation itself groans. And I don't have I don't have time this morning to recap that message. So if you weren't here last week, I want to just encourage you, especially this message to listen online at mylpclacy.com. You can download it to your device there as well. Well, this morning we're focusing on verses 23 through 27. I wanted us to read it in context, but we're just focusing on those five Verses where Paul turns first from the sufferings and glory of the creation to the suffering and glory of God's children in verses 23 to 25. Let me just quickly recap that. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. I like to pronounce it that way. Is that okay? As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And I want you to notice four statements that Paul makes about us the children of God, 
in those three verses. He says, first of all, that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And I want you to understand this morning that it is because we have the first fruits of the Spirit that we groan. It's not because we lack the Spirit. It's because we have the Spirit. Because He lives in us. The first fruits, the Old Testament image of first fruits, pertained to the first batch of a harvest. It was a very literal thing. The first batch of the harvest was a foretaste of what was to come. The first fruits looked forward to the promise of a fuller harvest later on. So Paul says we groan because we have the Spirit. Once the Spirit of God, with his demand for holiness, he is the Holy Spirit, when he enters in our lives with his demand for holiness, we sense as never before just what God wants us to be. We sense what we are not. And as a result, the Spirit increases our frustration at not meeting God's standards. The Holy Spirit increases our yearning to be what He wants us to be. What do we wait for? We wait for the redemption of our body, which refers to the rescue of the body from sin and death that will happen when it is raised from the dead, incorruptible, immortal. In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul gives us another window on this same wonderful reality when he writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that is Jesus, were sealed, notice this, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word sealed means something very similar to the word guarantee. Paul says that the promised Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, God has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, a down payment on our inheritance. As we saw last week, Paul saying that the the Holy Spirit is given for a purpose similar to an engagement ring. And in fact, I read this week that the word translated seal here is the very same word that is used by Greeks today for an engagement ring. It anticipates, it serves as a reminder of a coming marriage, a fuller, more all-encompassing, more permanent relationship yet to come. And it marks us as God's very own. See, as... As, as those in the spiritual realms look on at what's going on here in the world, 
they see us marked. They see us sealed by the Holy Spirit. Like little laser lights in the darkness. The marks of the Holy Spirit on us. So when Paul uses the word first fruits, let me let me just add this. When Paul uses the word first fruits here in Romans eight, he's not saying that we only have a partial measure of the Spirit. When 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 the Holy Spirit took up residency in you, all of Him took up residence in you. You don't get one at one time and get the fullness later. Paul said to the Colossians, in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ. You have the fullness. So in saying that he that we have the first roots, Paul's not saying we just have you know the Costco sample. He's saying we have the whole twenty five pound bag. He's saying that we've received the fullness of the Holy Spirit and His presence in our lives is a foretaste of the complete and comprehensive freedom from the effect of sin and death in our bodies and spirits that God the Holy Spirit will one day give to us. This will come only when we have what we currently do not have. And until then we groan. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you ever groan? What do you groan about? Anybody? Getting up? Hungry? The Mariners? Thank you. What else? Traffic. Your lower back. Yeah, as I was thinking about this week, I, I was conscious of when I groan. And I've realized I actually groan out loud a lot more than I realized that I do. I, I groan sometimes as I sit down, and I groan again when I stand up. I, I catch myself groaning when I'm climbing our stairs at home because I've finally arrived at that age where my knees start to hurt. I, I groan when I lay down to sleep at night, and I groan when I get up in the morning. I groan while I'm watching the evening news. I, I sometimes even groan when I'm in the office at my desk and Pastor Evans bugging me. I, I, I groan a lot. And Paul says that we who have trusted in Christ groan inwardly because we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Here's, a, here's another point of potential confusion. Why? Because in, in verse 15, Paul told us that we're already adopted, didn't he? How can he then tell us to wait eagerly for our adoption as the children of God? And the answer is that though we are legally adopted, we are the children of God, we have yet not yet received the, the fullness of family resemblance, if you will. We've not yet enjoyed the final celebration of that status. You don't see the fullness of what it means and what it signifies and what it will be. We're, we're adopted, but, but we wait to be made into full family members. 
We saw last week in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We saw last week that in that, in that moment of seeing Jesus, there's going to be a transformation that will take place in that split second. And we'll be made in the fullness of his likeness. And so theologian John Stott said, we are in a provisional half-saved condition. You're saved, but you haven't experienced the fullness of your salvation yet. That the indwelling spirit of the God of God in our lives coincides with groaning should not surprise us. Why? Because the very presence of the Holy Spirit is a constant reminder of that fact that our salvation is not yet complete. And like the rest of creation, we share in the frustration, the bondage to decay the pain and the suffering that are our daily reality this side of heaven. One reason for our groaning is our very physical frailty and mortality. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we grow weary in our present bodies, and all God's people said, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies... We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, there it is again, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. You look forward to that body? I do. I'm going to have a six-pack again to replace the keg. But it's not only our fragile body that makes us groan, is it? It's our, also our fallen nature, our sinful self that hinders us from behaving as we should. There's this struggle, isn't there, between the, the selfish desires of our sin nature and the holy and righteous desires of the Holy Spirit. Were it not for the presence of the Spirit convicting us of sin, and at the same time enabling us by His power to, to at least take steps toward living godly lives, we never would on our own. Galatians 5.17, Paul tells us why. He says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. And the spirit sets its desire against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And I used to look at this when I was younger, that line, so that you may not do the things that you please, and I thought of all the, the sinful things I really wanted to do. I can't do those, but, but as I grow Older, maybe wiser, I'm realizing that because the flesh sets a desire against the Spirit, I'm never going to do many of the things that the Spirit is prompting me to do. Because I'm always going to be at war. There's always going to be this war going on inside me, this side of heaven. 
We groan in our marriages. We groan in our families. We groan in our work. We groan because we, the church, are not what we know we should be and what God the Holy Spirit wants us to be, is making us to be. We groan as we see the fallen condition and the total brokenness of our world. Any of you groan this week as you saw the news about the shootings in El Paso and Dayton? Have you thought about the brokenness in the lives of the shooters that led them to do such a thing? Have you thought about the families of the victims? Did you groan? Here's a quotable quote. Our groans express both present pain and future longing. Our groans express both express <laughs> help him Jesus. Our groans express both present pain and future longing. Spirit has begun a good work in us, and he will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity. He says, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less He meant what he said. So Paul goes on, he says, we were saved in this hope. We were saved in this hope. Notice Paul says we were saved, and in our English minds we think of past tense, but the verb in the Greek is the aorist tense. So what he's saying is that at a definite point in each of our lives, God liberated us from the bondage and guilt of our sins, and from God's judgment on our sins, and that continues to be our condition. We were saved, we are saved, we are being saved, and that moment of liberation was the moment that you transferred your trust from yourself and your own morality, your own goodness, your own good works, your own good intentions, your own performance, to what Christ accomplished at the cross for you. And in that moment of transfer, you were saved once and for all. It is hope that carries us through our times of suffering. Were it not for the hope of heaven, we would give up, would we not? The hope that we have in Christ is not garden variety hope. It's not the kind we're exercising when we say, I hope I win the lottery which I never will because I refuse to buy a ticket, or, or I hope the Seahawks win the Super Bowl, which I usually think for at least the first few games of the season. Christian hope is altogether different. It's altogether unique. It's not wishful thinking. It is instead confident anticipation, solidly grounded in God himself, in his person, and in his power and in his promise, and in the finished work of Christ through his death and burial and resurrection, we know that we know that we know with confidence that the fullness of our salvation is coming. 
And so we wait for it patiently. Hold on, church. Hold on. It's going to get darker before the dawn. So hold on. Encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. Don't withdraw. Push in. Push into the life of discipleship. Push into Christian community. Push into the mission that we're called to fulfill. We live in the in-between times, between present difficulty and future destiny, between the already and the not yet, between sufferings and glory, and our, our waiting is an exercise in endurance, sustained by hope in the faithfulness, the utter, complete faithfulness of God. And as they say in the infomercials, but wait, there's more. In verses 26 to 27, Paul describes the groaning of the Spirit when he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Have you ever thought about the fact that when you're groaning, when you can't articulate your prayers, when you can't find words to express the content and the longings, the desires of your heart, that God is groaning with you? Even that he is groaning for you? If you have trouble with the image of God, the Holy Spirit, expressing deep emotion, remember God the Son that night in the Garden of Gethsemane and on so many other occasions. You know, true Christian prayer is impossible without the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? It's, it's the Spirit of God, Paul says, who enables us to say, to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, when we pray, when we worship. In fact, you might say that prayer is essentially a Trinitarian Exercise. It is access to God the Father only through God the Son and only by God the Holy Spirit. Access to God the Father only through God the Son and only by God the Holy Spirit. One Christian author referred to the Holy Spirit as the go-between God. He is the person of the Trinity who is most intimately involved in our daily lives today. So Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weakness for a specific reason. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know what to pray for. 
And Paul doesn't qualify it with words like sometimes we don't know what to pray for or in some situations we don't know what to pray for. He states it as a general principle. And he's saying that even the most spiritually mature and most verbally eloquent or verbally gifted of us don't know what to pray for. We're not up to it. And so the Spirit of God comes to our aid. And the words that Paul uses here describe the Holy Spirit coming up alongside of us and providing what is lacking in our communication with God. That help comes in the form of intercession. The Spirit intercedes for us. He goes between us and God. He helps us in our weakness by interceding for us Paul says, with groanings too deep for words. Inarticulate groanings. And even at that, he's groaning with us. He's groaning for us. And and in fact, the word groanings in verse 26 means literally to groan together. The Spirit enters into our experience, enters into the longings of our heart, enters into our communion with God and speaks to God on our behalf. There is no groaning of your heart that the Spirit does not know. Whether small or large, the Spirit of God knows the groanings of your heart. He knows your concerns. He knows your pains. He knows your anguish. He knows your longings. He groans with you. It's interesting to note that Jesus, as well, is always interceding for us. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he, that is Jesus, is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. What's Jesus doing right now? He's interceding before the Father on your behalf. The theologian John Murray wrote the children of God have two divine intercessors. Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven, while the Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. God is for you, not against you. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit both intercede for you before the Father, advocating for you, defending you. And because the Spirit of God intercedes for us in prayer, the Father hears and responds accordingly because of this final fact, that the Spirit intercedes according to God's will. One thing that you can be 100% sure of is that when the Spirit of God intercedes for you in prayer, He is never praying according to your will. He prays according to God's will.
And so you can also be sure that he is also always praying for your very best. Because the will of God is perfect. God's will for you is perfect. And it leads to your perfection. As I close this morning, I just want to say this. If, if you are a person who struggles in prayer, maybe, maybe you're a brand new believer. Maybe you're a guy. <laughs> Guys tend to struggle in prayer. We only have a few words each day, and when we've used them up, they're gone. Or maybe, maybe you think you ought to pray like somebody else prays. You say, man, if I could just pray like that, I'd be super spiritual. <laughs> the reality is that God doesn't hear that person any more than he hears you. Or let me put that another way. God hears you just as much as he hears that verbally gifted prayer. The communion is not in the words. God's not impressed with your words. Prayer is communing with God by the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And what God does is he searches your heart. And the Holy Spirit scans your heart, if you will, and he encrypts that into heavenly language. And God hears it, and he responds. So when you come in prayer, don't, don't come trying to impress God with, you know, whatever the latest line is, big words, doctrinal accuracy. God, God, God's not impressed with all of that. Just come. Come into his presence. And allow him to hear your heart. You might not have to say a word at all. In fact, you don't. He hears you. And he answers. And he responds according to his will. Let's pray together. Lord, you have searched us and you have known us. You know every aspect of our lives. You know every thought, every desire, every longing. You understand every groan, small or large, silent or audible. And Lord, thank you that you call us into communion with yourself, that you call us into fellowship, you call us into relationship. And Lord, that you take responsibility for every aspect of this life of discipleship. And so we declare and confess with the Apostle Paul that he who began a good work in us will be the one who carries it on to completion unto the day of Christ Jesus. We love you, Lord. We don't understand all that's going on. Well, so we're thankful that, that you do, and we can simply walk in loving obedience as your Spirit prompts us. In Jesus' name, amen.